We're now going to have our scripture reading. Pastor Larry is going to lead us. Then immediately following that, we're going to have a Father's Day video and then today's message. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12. I'll begin reading at verse 7. What children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Good job, Lauren. Okay, I got it. Dad. Okay, don't forget to carry the one. Dad. Okay, that was delicious, thank you. Hold on there, kiddo. Jeez. There you go. Okay, just one more. Hold your trophy up a little bit higher. Dad. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. Dad. I love it. Um, no. Dad. Dad. And they were here first. So Dad! We... So you want to go catch a movie at like 7.30 or something? <sighs> Dad! And one more. Okay, one more. Okay, let's go. Wait, 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 come on, just one more, one more. Dad! Now you just got to get a job. Dad! You look beautiful. Oh, Dad. Uh, and stand just a little closer together and move just a little bit to the left, uh, my left, uh, a little more. Dad! Well, I invite you to Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. We're taking a break from our series in the book of Revelation today because of Father's Day. We'll pick up our series in Revelation next week with chapter 13. But today, Ephesians chapter 6. Our greatest weaknesses are often our strengths that are taken just a bit too far. For example, one who is empathetic and who can identify with the pain of others and is therefore good at comforting the hurting, that person can take on the problems of others to an extent that it depresses them and perhaps even debilitates them for a time. Less serious but nevertheless important, take a person who has a very quick wit 
who can give humorous quips in any situation, but that same person can sometimes fail to assess the situation that calls for sober reflection rather than lighthearted banner. For me, personally, the, the ability to articulate and to lead are things, strengths, but I struggle with taking them too far. I talk when I should allow others to speak. I take charge when I should allow others to lead. This tendency to misuse and abuse good things is seen not only in our gifts, but it's also seen in our roles. For men, God calls us to lead in the home, but that easily and too often degenerates from leading to dominating. For ladies, the Bible extols the nurture and tenderness that a wife and mother can provide, but some, even many, exercise that to manipulate in order to get what they want, and thus the oft-used, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. God commands children to obey and honor their parents, but this can become man-centered when it's focused on pleasing our parents so that we later become people-pleasing adults and we're overly dependent on the approval of others. Our capacity as sinful human beings to distort what is good is really unlimited. One of the consequences of the distorting tendency is that we're afraid to allow the role to be played for fear that it's going to be misused and abused. Now that's a legitimate concern for sure, as I've already mentioned. But you still have to recognize that God gives us these roles and these responsibilities, and despite the possibility of them being abused and misused, they still need to be carried out. The truth is you cannot abuse what you do not have. You can't abuse leadership unless you have leadership. You can't abuse power unless you have power. You can't abuse authority unless you have authority. Now, it's certainly true that you can usurp any of those. You can claim leadership that is not yours or power or authority, but the truth is there are roles of leadership and authority that are real and they're God-given and they cannot be ignored even with their potential for abuse and misuse. And today we celebrate not just a title, father, but a role, and one that has indeed been and is abused, but it's nevertheless given by God to be a blessing to those who are touched by it. So let's pray now and ask God to help us as we look at this important matter from God's Word. Our Father, we thank You that we are here now, whether in our homes, listening by live stream, whether here on location, listening on radio. Thank You for knitting our hearts together now around Your Word, and on this Father's Day, to focus upon the awesome role that you have given to men to model your love and your leadership in the lives of those that you have placed under our care. Lord, I pray that you will instruct us from your word. I pray as well that you will comfort our hearts because this role is so awesome, because it is beyond our ability, and because we are sinful people, then we fail. We fail at tasks, perhaps we fail spectacularly. And for many then, this day might be a day of regret, but help us to remember that in Christ, 
there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is always a new day. And so encourage us, instruct us, we ask you from your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, the fourth verse, starts out, fathers. Now, the fact that the last chapter of the book of Ephesians addresses fathers means what I say first in the outline that hopefully you have in front of you. There's an outline button underneath your media player, and if you have that on your screen or if you have that in front of you in print, I say, first of all, dads are given great responsibility. The mention of human fathers in the last chapter of this book follows the mention of God the Father several times in the preceding chapters. Back in chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That verse is saying that God the Father is the prototype, the model for all fatherhood. Dads, God is Father, and He is given an earthly expression of what His leadership and love look like, look like in the role that He's assigned to us. What an awesome, what a great responsibility. And then in chapter 2, in verse 19, it says, God is the Father of a household. That household is His church. It says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of His household. And then in chapter 1, we're told that the members of His church are so because they have been both born and adopted into it. Back in chapter 2, in verse 5, it says we were made alive. That is, we were given spiritual life. We were born again. So we were born into God's family. And then in chapter 1, in verse 5, it says in love, He predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we have come to Him in repentance and faith, then we have been born into the family of God. We've also been adopted with the full rights and privileges of sons and daughters into His family. And dads, we're to emulate in our human relationships, in our homes, what God is in His relationship with those who are His. It's a great responsibility. Now, I'm very thankful for the faithful mothers that we have in our own congregation that are raising children on their own. My own mother raised me when my father died when I was 11. God extended His grace to her and through her to me, but not only through her, but also through some key men that God brought into my life. I had an uncle, my dad's brother, who took over pastoring the church of which my dad was the pastor. After my dad died, he became the pastor, and he picked up me and my younger brother every Sunday for church. Dick Carrico, Pastor Rich's dad, became a dad to me. And of course, dad, my father-in-law, who made it clear to me early in my relationship with Kim that we were to be father and son, not just in-laws, and thankfully not outlaws as well. So thankfully, a young man without a father or without a good father can, by proxy, see models of manhood in the family of God, the church. And so men, 
even if you don't have biological children of your own, as I stress to our ladies on Mother's Day, we are all God-parents in the sense that we are God's family. And so remember, men, single men, married men who don't have children, that you're still modeling what manhood is before young men in our church who are looking to you. And God's grace overrules the effects of sin that result in death, as in the case of my father, or divorce, or dereliction of responsibility. So while any of these, having key people come into your life, having models within the church, God overruling the effects of sin in various ways, any of those result in exceptions to God's given rule. His design in Scripture is clear that He's made fathers to play a key role in the home, and when that is not the case, then ill consequences often follow. In an article in the Atlantic Magazine a few years ago, written by the author of a book on parenting called Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives, that article quoted actress Jennifer Aniston saying, quote, women are realizing more and more they don't have to settle with a man to have that child. The article in the book, though, make the point that fathers often engage their children in ways that differ from the ways in which mothers do. And so, therefore, that input in the life of a child is very necessary. Yes, there are exceptions, and yes, parents also engage their children in ways that are not specifically gendered. But there are at least four ways that today's dads tend to make distinctive contributions to their children's lives. I'll list those as quickly as I can. One is the way dads play with their kids. Father's hallmark style of interaction is physical play that's characterized by arousal and excitement and unpredictability. Fathers tend to spend more time with their children engaged in vigorous play than mothers do. And they play a uniquely physical role in teaching their sons and their daughters how to handle their bodies and their emotions even when they're not on a, an athletic field or court. Children who roughhouse with their fathers quickly learn that biting and kicking and other forms of physical violence aren't accepted. Dads also encourage risk with their children. Fathers are more likely to engage their children to take risks, embrace challenges, be independent, whereas mothers, again, generally speaking, are likely to focus on their children's safety and their emotional well-being. Fathers play a particularly important role in the development of children's openness to the world. For instance, a study that focused on parents teaching their kids to swim found that, quote, fathers tend to stand behind their children so the children face their social environment, and mothers tend to position themselves in front of their children, seeking to establish visual, visual contact with the children. Fathers are generally more likely to have their children talk to strangers and overcome obstacles. A third way that fathers bring a distinctive value to the parenting task is in the way they protect their children. Fathers, due to their size, strength, and aggressive public presence, appear to be more successful in keeping predators and bad peer influences away from their sons and daughters. Fatherly absence has been cited by multiple scholars as the single greatest risk factor in teen pregnancy in girls. And then another is the way that dads 
discipline their children. Fathers tend to be firmer with their children compared to mothers. They tend to be more willing than mothers to confront their children and enforce discipline. By contrast, mothers are more likely to reason with their children, be flexible in disciplinary situations, rely on their emotional ties to a child to encourage that child to behave. But mothers and fathers working together as co-parents offer a diverse yet balanced approach to discipline, which is very healthy for the child. The contributions that fathers make to their children's lives can be seen in three consequences. One is in teenage delinquency, another in pregnancy, and another in depression. With regard to delinquency, boys who enjoy high-quality relationships with their fathers are about half as likely to be delinquent compared to boys being raised by single mothers or by fathers who are in intact families, but they have low-quality relationships with those boys. With regard to teen pregnancy, teenage girls living with their father in an intact family and enjoying at least average quality relationship with him are about half as likely to become pregnant as teenagers. That's compared to girls living with a single mother or having a low-quality relationship with their father. Depression. A high-quality relationship with dad is associated with less depression. Such teenagers are less than half as likely to end up depressed compared to their peers in single mother households or intact homes where dad has a low-quality relationship with the children. So Ephesians 6 and verse 4 begins fathers. And while this verse is addressed to fathers, it also assumes the role of mothers in cooperation with each other. As author and biblical counselor Jay Adams observes, when Paul speaks to the fathers, he's speaking to the mothers. The reason that he addresses the fathers is that what the mothers do, the fathers are responsible for. In addressing the father, he's addressing the one in whom God has vested his authority for discipline. The father is the head of the home. The father is the one who ultimately must answer to God for what happens in the home. So dads are given. Dads, we're given great responsibility. But thankfully, secondly in your outline, dads are given clear direction. Great responsibility, but clear direction. Because Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, bring your children up in the training of the Lord. Now this means, as I say in the outline, that dads are to point our children toward the goal. Point our children toward the goal. The fact that children require bringing up assumes that there's a need. Our children are in need of direction, and they are so for a number of reasons. One is they are ignorant. I don't mean that pejoratively, just that they don't know. They're immature, but also they're naturally bent to go their own way. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. That begins at conception. You don't have to teach a child to do that. Children naturally are bent that way as all of us are. Now, you know that your New Testament was originally, many of you do, know that it was originally written in Greek. And the verb that's translated, bring them up, is in what is called the imperative mood in Greek. That means it's a command. Bring them up. It's not optional. This must be done. So dads must necessarily point their children 
in the right direction, and we must, I say in the outline, move our children toward the goal. Move our children toward the goal. Bring them up is not only in the imperative mood, but it's in what's called the active voice in Greek. It means it requires action on our part, on behalf of our children. And that's because children are not to be self-directed. We are not to passively stand by as they move in the direction they might want to go in their immaturity and especially in their sin. Our children are not simply flowers just waiting to bloom by themselves. In fact, flowers that are left to themselves, if they grow at all, are wildflowers. And the same is true for children. So dads point their children in the right direction, actively move them toward it, and, I say in the outline, we always advance our children toward the goal. Always advance them toward the goal. Bring them up, as I've said, is in the imperative mood. It's in the active voice. It's also in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing activity. Parenting cannot be a part-time job. So dads, we bring them up necessarily. It's a command. Actively and constantly. And the verse tells us how we can do this when it says we must bring them up, notice, in the training of the Lord. Now the Greek word that's translated training means discipline, sometimes translated discipline. We bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. So training or discipline refers to enforced learning, learning with structure, learning with some teeth in it. I just want to pause here briefly and say, as I go through this now, bringing up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, as I go through this, one of the things that underlies your ability and my ability as parents, dads in particular, to carry these things out is, is meant a confidence, a confidence that we are carrying out God's work in the lives of our children. The reason that you will do this enforced learning, learning with structure, learning with teeth in it, and not shirk back from it, wondering, fretting about whether I'm doing the right thing, is because you're confident that this is what God has told you to do. And so you do what God has said, and then you commit the life of that child to the God who said it. So discipline is required. And it's required for a child because all children require structure to grow. The book of Proverbs tells us this in chapter 29 and verse 15. Proverbs 29, 15. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. So do you have confidence in that? Do you have confidence that this is what God has said? A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Now why? Why does a child need this kind of structured discipline? Proverbs again, Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So when I said earlier, you don't have to teach a child to go wayward. We're born with, born with a bent to do that. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. 
And the other reason that this structure of discipline is needed in the lives of all children is because they are like you and me, sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says that we were all children of wrath, it says, before we came to Christ. Now, we see the tendency to imbalance and distortion in the way we discipline and instruct. I mentioned that tendency to imbalance earlier so that we play our roles in an imbalanced way, sometimes in a selfish way. And you see that in the way folks go about trying to fulfill these requirements. So you might have, because I'm supposed to discipline, you might have a dad who is overbearing. So he's out of balance in in that way. He's overbearing. He's always riding his children. We'll see that that has ill effects in a little bit. Or on the other side, you might have a parent, a dad, since it's Father's Day, over-explaining or moving toward permissiveness, letting them do their own thing, out of balance, distorted. The first one, being overbearing, tends to forget the object of this role that we're playing as a parent. The object is the child. The objective is the good of the child. This is for them. It's not for me. It's not for you. It's not for our reputations. We will tend to be overbearing if we are overly worried about how our child's, per, our child's behavior reflects upon us. But that should take a back seat to what's best for them. And then the other, the over-explaining and the permissiveness, forgets that the means of love. The means of love is doing what's in the best interest of another, and it's never in the best interest of another to simply let them go in a wrong direction. So let me give you some suggestions then for, for discipline. I've got a bulleted list of these. I'll go through this fairly quickly. But set clear boundaries. And as you set those boundaries, remember again who the object of this is. It's them. The objective is for their benefit. So as you set these boundaries, it's for their good. Not not yours, not your convenience. They're good. Set clear boundaries. Avoid the danger, secondly, of unannounced rules. So you just make something up on the fly when something happens that you didn't like. And so now there's a, now there's a rule. And that often means I was inconvenienced, and so I make something up, again, for my benefit. Make sure that your children understand the rules. Tell them what's expected Tell them what they're to do, if need be, show them how to do it, and then also tell them what the consequences will be if they do it as a reward, if they fail to do it as a punishment. Don't give too many. Again, I mentioned the overbearing parent tends to be the parent who is more worried about themselves, more worried about how a child's behavior reflects and affects them. And the parent who gives too many rules tends to fall into this category. Don't make rules that they they cannot keep. Avoid rules about trivial things. All of those would fall under that, that banner. But be consistent. If you give the rules, if you explain them, if you tell what the reward and the punishment will be, if they fail to do that, then be consistent in carrying out what you said. 
Inconsistency will move our children toward further disobedience. And so, almost done here, just two more. Expect immediate obedience in action, but also in attitude. You see, friends, what we're trying to do, in the words of Ted Tripp's excellent book on parenting, shepherd a child's heart. Shepherding a child's heart is what we're trying to do. And so it's not just we want you to do the right thing. We're trying to get our children to do the right thing for the right reason, and that's why action and attitude are both important. And then lastly, follow through with the discipline related to the consistency that I mentioned earlier. So we're to bring them up in the training, the discipline of the Lord, but that verse, verse 4 of Ephesians 6 says, we also bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. The Greek word that's translated instruction is one that some of you have heard, nutheteo. There's a type of counseling. It's just really a word for biblical counseling, but it uses this word. It's called nuthetic counseling. But what it does is it brings what the Bible says to bear upon the issues of life. This Greek word nutheteo means to instruct, to warn, to acknowledge, admonish. And so those who engage in nuthetic counseling are bringing the Bible to bear on situations in instructing, but also warning and admonishing. Literally, this word means to put in mind or place on the mind. You see it in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. That word warn is this word nutheteo. In Ephesians 6, it's instruct. Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. That word admonish, again, that same word. So it's instruct, it's warn, it's admonish. If you want a working definition of what this means, this instruction of the Lord, men, it means this, loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. So we're warning, we're instructing, we're admonishing with the truth, but for the purpose of seeing our kids go in the right direction. You see this in the famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God has given the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 again. He gave them originally in Exodus chapter 20, then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then having given these Ten Commandments to the nation, in this follow-up chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So what is it that we are to put in our children's minds with this word instruct, to place on the mind? What is it? It's God's commands. It's God's instructions. It's the Word of God. And men, you have a, a rich encyclopedia of data, of information, of instruction to pull from in order to place on the mind of our children in the Word of God because the Bible deals with every area of life, either in precept or in principle, either directly or indirectly. The Bible includes not only theological truth, but also practical instruction for daily living. Deuteronomy 6 teaches very clearly that the ultimate responsibility then for educating our children, 
And the ultimate source from which that education is to come is the Word of God. That means that we can delegate instruction of our children, we can, to the church and the school. But please understand, delegation is not the same as abdication. Parents are ultimately responsible for their child's education. Whether they delegate a portion of that to a public school or a private school, ultimately it is we parents who are responsible. So dads are to bring up their children necessarily, actively, and constantly. But I say in the outline, dads are not to frustrate their children. Dads are not to frustrate their children. Because verse 4 says, fathers do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training, discipline, and instruction of the Lord. So we're to avoid frustrating our children, exasperating them. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that we never do anything that will displease our children. The fact is, because our children, like us, are sinners, obedience does not come naturally. Therefore, this requirement to obey will often be met with displeasure. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean never doing anything that your kids don't like. But here's what it does mean, I say in the outline. What it does mean. To avoid exasperating our children means that we should not be the cause of their exasperation. Rather, if they are angry, it should be because of their own internal struggle to do what is right. Men are made to be generally tough, given our tough role. And sometimes, men, the case is that the harder we had it, the harder we can be on our children. Therefore, we have this command, fathers, do not exasperate, do not embitter your children. Literally, in Greek, this is literally, do not take the wind out of the sails. Do not take the wind out of your, your child. So what is the consequence of provoking our children, exasperating our children, embittering them, taking the wind out of their sails? You have this, this same verse in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Colossians 3.21. It says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. If we do this, men, if we take the wind out of their sails, they will become discouraged. Fathers, I have been amazed to learn over the years the profound impact that a man has upon his children. And I say I've been amazed to learn because, as I said earlier, I lost my dad at 11. Thankfully, I had other men come into my life. Thank God. But I have counseled lots of guys now over the years, talked to lots of guys, and there is a hurt, there is a wound, particularly between men and their boys, their sons. Because these fathers were distant, because these fathers were embittering, because they perhaps would belittle them. It was never good enough. I could never meet up to his standard. I admired what he did for a living. I wanted to be like him, but I could never do it. And there's this hole 
that these men carry around with them. I've discovered this as our men, for example, go through our men's fraternity material that they're doing on the second and fourth Fridays of each month. There's a lesson in the first installment of men's fraternity called the dad wound, the dad wound. As far as I know, I never had a dad wound because my dad wasn't around and so my mom played a much more crucial role. As far as I know, I never had the dad wound. I, I couldn't relate to that. But I have seen how profoundly, as we go through that, that has touched the hearts of men, the emotions of men who have struggled with that for many years. And so, fathers, I am telling you that you have a profound and lasting impact upon your children. It can cause wounds for many years to come. It can embitter your children. It can take the wind out of their sails. Be careful, very careful what you say to them. Be very careful what you expect of them. So there are sons that are listening to this, adult sons who have children of their own now, perhaps, who need to deal with what some call the dad wound. We have material to, to help you with, with that. And fathers, if you've inflicted the wound, I would encourage you to do what the Bible says. Go to your son and to seek reconciliation, to say, son, God has taught me some things I didn't recognize when I was raising you, and I'm seeking your forgiveness for that. There's reconciliation in Christ and therefore within families. So dads are given great responsibility, but we're given clear direction about what we're to do and not do. And then thirdly and lastly, dads are given amazing grace, amazing grace. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, and the verse we've been looking at is in the last chapter of Ephesians chapter 6. But those three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are the application section of the book of Ephesians. Paul, who wrote Ephesians, he wrote 12 other books in your New Testament as well, he often divided his letters into two parts. The first part, and the part that would come first, would be the didactic or the teaching, doctrinal section. And then that would be followed by what's called a hortatory section, the application or the practical section. So the idea is before telling you what to do and how to do it, God tells you who you are. He gives you teaching, He gives you doctrine about who He is and who we are in relation to Him. Most important, not just teaching you who you are, but whose you are, so that you have the security and the confidence and the power to carry out what He's going to tell you you need to do. So Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are that practical application section, but the first three chapters of Ephesians are amazing in their teaching about our relationship with God the Father, and that should supply the context in which we carry out and assume these responsibilities for and to our children. In the midst of that, in chapter 2 and verse 10 of Ephesians, we're told we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So men, God has prepared you to do this. God is, by His Word and by His Spirit, He equips you to do this. 
Just as God tells us men who we are before He tells us what to do, so also we should do the same thing for our children. Remind them regularly who they are, children of God. Remind them whose they are, children of God, children of yours, entrusted to you by God. Remind them regularly that you love them, that you're honored, and that you're humbled to be their father. Here's your take-home truth. God has called fathers to a great task, but He has provided greater resources. He's provided greater resources. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to have gathered around the truth of Your Word. And on this Father's Day, as we see what You say to those of us that You have blessed with children, entrusted to us as a stewardship before You, that, Father, these children are first Yours before they're ours. And so we are carrying out Your bidding, Your work in their lives. So help me to remember that. Help each of us as fathers to remember that. And then, Lord, in a fallen world with sin distorting everything it touches, including our relationships, we have men who have carried around deep hurt for many years because of their relationships with their father. I ask, Lord, if those fathers are still here, that, that men will take the initiative, whether it's the father who's wronged the child or the child who's been wronged, that they'll take the initiative to pursue reconciliation that we have in Christ. But Lord, I ask You as well to help every father, yes, who has children in the home, but every man in the family of God to recognize that children are watching, little eyes are watching, and they are looking up to see men who model godliness and faithfulness before them week in and week out. May this church be a church full of such men who are committed to God the Father and committed to emulating the character of God the Father in the lives of those who are looking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.